Hello, and welcome to Grand Dukes of the West, episode 26, Armagnacs and Burgundians. Last time, we saw many of the princes of France unite into the League of Gia to oppose Burgundian ambitions, and we ended our last episode with John the Fearless managing to detach the Duke of Berry from the League of Gia and with all of the princes leaving the capital. While the 1410 peace deal of Bissut could not be considered a Burgundian victory, it was not a defeat. John had to give up his direct control of the French government, but the administration was still dominated by Burgundian-aligned officials. And so with John the Fearless still calling the shots in Paris, albeit indirectly, the remaining members of the League of Gia resolved to continue their fight against the Duke of Burgundy. The Duke of Berry's peace with the Duke of Burgundy was just that, the Duke of Berry's peace. While he had agreed to the terms on behalf of the League of Gia, the other members had no intention of keeping to its terms. And unfortunately so for Jean de Croix, a leading member in John the Fearless's administration. De Croix was on a diplomatic mission to the Duke of Berry when he was captured by Orleanists. He was brought to the Orleanist castle of Blois and held in the dungeon. The arrest served as a warning to John the Fearless that he could not rely on the peace that he had made with his uncle to rein in the other members of the League of Gia, and shortly after, he began preparing for a return to arms. The Duke of Berry was outraged at the arrest and considered it an affront to his honor. In fact, the arrest did cause the Duke of Berry to, albeit temporarily, go over to the Burgundian cause and threaten military action against the Duke of Orléans. The young Charles of Orléans knew how inflammatory his actions were, and was already raising more soldiers in anticipation of a military response. Despite the Duke of Berry's attempts to dismiss the League of Gia, the alliance between the Duke of Orléans, the Duke of Bourbon, and the Counts of Armagnac and Alençon was reaffirmed, and the princes began plans to coordinate another offensive against the Duke of Burgundy. These princes were joined by Arthur de Richemont, a brother of the Duke of Brittany. While John V of Brittany had staked out a neutral position in the conflict between the League of Gia and the Duke of Burgundy, his brother, despite being a pallbearer at Philip the Bold's funeral, had become fully aligned with the League and would lead a number of Breton contingents in support of it over the next few years. Now, the family of Joan of Navarre is one of the more interesting examples of divided loyalties. Joan herself was Queen of England and had slight Burgundian sympathies, while her brother, Charles, King of Navarre, was one of the Duke of Burgundy's closest allies around this time. We saw that her oldest son, John V, was hesitantly neutral, but tended to favor the League over Burgundy, at least at this time, while her second son, Arthur, was firmly on the side of the League. Her third son, Gilles, was a close friend of the Dauphin and had Burgundian sympathies, and her other children tended to be Orleanists. Divided loyalties were common, and, as is said with regards to the U.S. Civil War, brother fought against brother, and father against son. And that was just as true of this conflict. Meanwhile, John the Fearless was in Tournay, meeting with his brother, the Duke of Brabant, his brothers-in-law, the Bishop of Liège and the Count of Hainaut, Holland, Zealand, and the Count of Namur, making preparations of their own for a renewal of hostilities. But we shouldn't be under the impression that the Burgundian party was simply a low-country affair. Other Burgundian allies included the King of Navarre, as we've seen, as well as the Duke of Lorraine, and the Counts of Savoy, La Marche, Morton, and Vaudemont. As much as I've been focusing on John the Fearless, his brothers, and his brothers-in-law, this truly was a civil war. 
lines were being drawn all throughout France and even past its borders. Although an interesting regional divide does appear here. In his book on late medieval France, Graham Small spends a lot of time exploring the relationship between the crown and the lords of eastern and western France. We'll see that the Armagnacs are generally men of the west, a very Tolkien-esque term, while Burgundians tended to be men of the east. Throughout these months, the royal government did their best to keep the peace. The king, once again sane, sent embassies to both the nobles of the League and the Duke of Burgundy to suggest that the parties delay the summoning of their soldiers and agree to send representatives to negotiate a return to peace, with the once again neutral Duke of Berry presiding. John the Fearless agreed to this proposal, although likely for not totally magnanimous reasons. The League of Jean had a head start in summoning their soldiers, so a delay would put the two camps on a more even footing. But the Duke of Orléans refused the king's requests. The League's plan depended on being able to control the Seine Valley before the Duke of Burgundy could finish gathering his forces. Charles of Orléans' reply to the king stated that he could not obey the king's wishes as the royal council was dominated by his enemies and the king's, and that their presence prevented justice from being done. Charles also attached a list of ten names and said that if these men were removed from the royal council, that he would submit to the king. These ten men were all staunch Burgundians, of course, and for the time being, the gathering of forces continued. When John learned that the Duke of Orléans had no intention of delaying conflict, he too resumed summoning his army, if he had ever paused in the first place, which I find doubtful. He also sent a list of his own, of eleven men, which he demanded be excluded from the meetings of the royal council. John V of Brittany attempted to reassume his position of protector of the royal family, and returned to Paris in June with a small army of his own, although this army was mostly meant to protect him from Parisian agitations more than Burgundian or Leaguer armies. With the confidence that the backing of the Duke of Brittany gave him, the king once more issued demands that both sides stand down, but these were once again ignored. At the very least, though, the men listed in Charles of Orléans' letter were excluded from the royal council, but only in debates surrounding punishment for the assassination of Louis of Orléans. The king also relieved the vassals of the rival factions from the feudal responsibility of showing up for military summons. But these measures were too late to avoid conflict, and the Duke of Brittany did not have the means to overturn the balance of power in the royal council, which was still definitely Burgundian. On July 18, 1411, in the town of Jargeau, the Duke of Orléans and his brothers issued a declaration. It affirmed the virtue of their father and the wickedness of his assassination. They used John's apparent reconciliation with Louis days before his death and original protestations of innocence and appearance of mourning to undermine the justification. The Orléans princes then went on to reject the pieces of Chartres and Bissot as forced on them and accused the Duke of Burgundy of breaking them, which he had done by enforcing the continued Burgundian dominance of the royal council. They also denounced John's control of the French government and called for his removal and for him to face justice. The declaration of Jargeau ended with a challenge and a threat to John himself, quote, We cause you to know that from this time on we shall harm you with all of our power and in all the ways we can, and we appeal to God and to all the courts of the world to come to our aid against you and your disloyal treason. John responded to this challenge by reaffirming the case made in the justification and reaffirming his own loyalty to the crown. He finished by accusing the sons of Orléans of following in the treasonous ways of their father, quote, Because you and your brothers are following in the false track and disloyal felony of your father, 
hoping to achieve the damnable and disloyal aims to which he aspired. We have received your letters of defiance with great gladness of heart. Concerning their contents, you and your brothers have lied and do lie falsely, evilly, and disloyally, like the false and disloyal traitors that you are. For this reason, with the help of our Lord, we shall loyally ensure that you come to such an end and punishment as false and disloyal traitors, malicious, rebel, and disobedient felons like you and your brothers deserve in reason to come to. With the prospect of a League army marching on Paris, the Burgundians on the Royal Council managed to secure for John the Fearless the cover that he needed. John was once more given royal approval to summon his soldiers, as the latest attempt of the Queen and the Duke of Berry to negotiate a peace came to nothing. The Duke of Brittany, now seeing conflict as inevitable and wanting to preserve his neutrality, returned to Brittany with his men, now allowing the people of Paris to control the city. As a side note, it is around this time that the term Armagnacs began to be used in reference to the followers of the Duke of Orléans and the League of Gio, so going forward I'll be adopting that term as well. As the Peace Council at Milan was falling apart, Armagnac soldiers were streaming into the Ile-de-France and Picardy, with numbers totaling around 10,000. John of Berry had turned against John the Fearless once again. The Duke of Burgundy had been cultivating an alliance with the Butchers of Paris, a powerful and radical faction led by the three Legois brothers. This move spooked Barry, who really wanted to assure his own position above all else, and so seeing the overwhelming force brought to bear by the League of Gia, he reluctantly returned to the Armagnac camp. As the people of Paris were overwhelmingly pro-Burgundian, a paranoid specter filled the air. Rumors quickly spread around the city that the Duke of Berry would betray Paris to the Armagnacs. The butchers took up arms under the command of the brothers, and day by day Paris became tenser. The Duke of Berry sent an official protest to the Parlement of Paris to refute the rumors about him, which were becoming ever more slanderous by the day, but his reputation still sank. When he attempted to enter Paris soon after, he was barred at the gates. As all of this was happening, the Armagnac offensive was beginning, starting with the Duke of Orléans seizing the town of Wois in Picardy, officially a possession of the crown. This seizure of royal territory spurred the royal council, headed now by the Dauphin as the king was once more absent, to summon the Duke of Burgundy and charge him with expelling the Armagnacs from the royal domain. John had the commission he needed to justify a campaign now, but his campaign's raison d'etre was explicitly defensive and he was not given league to attack the territories of the members of the League of Gia. And the battle against the Armagnacs was not only ramping up in the field, it was also doing so in Paris. Along with John the Fearless's commission, the royal council provided for the defense of Paris itself. The Count of Saint-Paul, who, after Louis of Orléans' death, was once more in the Burgundian camp, was named the captain of the city, and given control of the royal forces in Paris. Under the Count of Saint-Paul, the butchers, along with the related trades of the skinners and flayers, were given permission to form a militia, and the persecution of Parisian Armagnacs began in earnest. To prove their loyalty, people began wearing Burgundian badges, showing St. Andrew's Cross, a Burgundian sign, a fleur-de-lis, and the words Vive le Roi, or Long Live the King. Three hundred prominent supporters of the Duke of Orléans were expelled from Paris, and some of the more unscrupulous residents of the city began to dress their own conflicts in disguise. Someone would see a rival of theirs in the street and accuse them of Armagnac sympathies, and they would be beaten or imprisoned. Lynchings against suspected Armagnacs were not uncommon, 
and the Armagnacs who fled the city had their property seized. The confiscation of Armagnac property was extended to important officials and princes. The brothers of the late Jean de Montague were both bishops and had their benefices taken from them, and the few remaining Armagnac royal officials were dismissed. In this tense and hostile atmosphere, the Dauphin, Louis of Guienne, now 16, began to assert himself politically. While he still preferred Burgundy to Armagnac, he had no interest in simply being a puppet of his father-in-law. He made a point to take counsel with both supporters and enemies of the Duke of Burgundy, and no longer would automatically approve Burgundian measures, instead taking the time to consider them, even if they were still almost always approved in the end. So, to counter the tide of Armagnacs flooding into the Ile-de-France and Picardy, John the Fearless began his own campaign. He set off from Douai and Gallican Flanders and quickly recaptured the Picard town of Am from the Armagnacs. John's army was a mass of 20,000 and was mainly made up of two components. The standard feudal levy, drawn mostly from the nobility of Artois, and a collection of Flemish town militias. Notably absent from this army were soldiers from the two Burgundies, as, while a Burgundian force had been raised, it was already being put to work in John's southern territories. After Am was taken, the forces of the Duke of Burgundy, specifically his Flemish contingents, began a sack of the town. When the inhabitants of Nel, Wah, and many of the other Armagnac-occupied towns in Picardy heard of the fate of Am, they expelled the Armagnac garrisons and submitted to the Duke of Burgundy. However, there were still some holdouts, so in order to secure Picardy and rendezvous with the Burgundian contingents, John next went to the town of Montdidier, where his brother Philip said he would be headed. The reason for the Burgundian delay was Louis de Chalon, the Count of Tonnerre. You might remember the Count of Tonnerre from episode 21, when John the Fearless seized some of his lands after a dispute in Burgundy between the two. Despite an official reconciliation between John and Louis, the Duke of Burgundy had been slow to return the Count of Tonnerre's seized lands. Louis de Chalon had thus been nursing a grudge against the Duke of Burgundy for a few years now, and was ready to join up with the anti-Burgundian forces. When John learned of Louis's plans to join his enemies, he used his control over the royal council to officially confiscate the county of Tonnerre, and then got himself appointed its governor. The Count of Tonnerre's attack on Burgundy actually preceded the campaigns in Picardy, and began around the time that Charles of Orléans was issuing his declaration at Jargeau. The campaign began in Tonnerre, where de Chalon was able to quickly retake the town of Tonnerre in the heart of the county and its castle. From there, Louis de Chalon began to attack the Duchy of Burgundy itself. As John the Fearless was gathering forces in the Low Countries in anticipation of the main Armagnac attack, Burgundy was left to his wife, Margaret of Bavaria. The Duchess of Burgundy quickly organized a defense of the duchy, including the mobilization of the militant nobility of the two Burgundies and the strengthening of key garrisons. Philip of Navarre, the youngest brother of John the Fearless, was able to come to his sister-in-law's aid the next month, and soon the Burgundians were also joined by the Duke of Lorraine. The allied Burgundian Nivernais Lorrainer army then began an offensive into Tonnerre. This offensive included attacks on Louis de Chalon's castles, which were facilitated by a large collection of artillery, featuring the Great Bombard of Burgundy. After taking Louis's main fortified castle of Rougemont, the Count of Tonnerre decided to flee the county, and once more, Tonnerre was in Burgundian hands. 
This does not mark the end of the conflict between Burgundy and Tonnerre, but Louis de Chalon will not be in a position to contest the occupation of his county for a few years. So as Tonnerre had been secured and Louis de Chalon had been dealt with, Philip of Nevers began leading a large portion of the Burgundian army north towards his brother's force in Picardy. Which brings us back to John the Fearless. After taking the towns of Am, Nel, and Wah, the Duke of Burgundy set his sights on Montdidier. The town was home to the last Armagnac garrison in southern Picardy and sat at an important crossroads. The Duke of Burgundy decided to settle in for a siege in order to allow Philip of Nevers and the Burgundian army to join him before beginning the march into the Ile de France. However, at Montdidier, John's army would be reduced rather than reinforced. The Flemings, as headstrong and stubborn as ever, had been reluctant to campaign ever since they had first been summoned. John the Fearless had managed to secure the presence of the urban militias only after granting additional rights to many of the cities of Flanders, and throughout the initial Pickard campaign, they had been constantly complaining and wanting to go home. As John campaigned further from Flanders, these complaints only got louder, and before long, many of the militias were threatening desertion. John found himself in a time crunch, as the term of service of the Ghent militia was set to expire in a few days. He haggled with the Gentinars and offered additional rights to the city, along with more pay, but it was a moot point. The Gentinars were going home. Along with the men of Ghent, the other Flemish contingents decided to return to Flanders as well, and shortly after the Flemings left, the militias summoned from Artois and Picardy deserted also. Over the course of a day, John the Fearless had lost around half of his army. And the timing could not have been worse. As John the Fearless was settling in at Montdidier, the Armagnacs were recalling their retreating forces from the Somme Valley and summoning additional troops to go on the offensive. Soon, a large Armagnac army was marching on Montdidier, while a smaller force was sent to intercept Philip of Nevers and prevent the Burgundian brothers from linking up. So just as John was losing his militiamen, he was receiving news of the approaching Armagnacs and that his brother would not be able to join him in Montdidier. At first, the Duke of Burgundy was determined to dig in and face the Armagnac attack, but before long, he also received news that the English earls of Arundel and Warwick had landed in Calais and so decided to rush off to Arras to meet them. John left Montdidier a few hours before the Armagnacs arrived. Perhaps, if they had moved with more urgency and decisiveness instead of aimlessly, a battle outside of Montdidier could have decided the war right then and there. As it stood, the Armagnacs had just passed up one of their best opportunities for victory. But back to John. The Duke of Burgundy was not headed for the English earls to fight him. Rather, he was on his way to secure their help. John had been in negotiations since the beginning of 1411 to secure English aid in the Civil War. Now due to how later events will play out, the Burgundian faction tends to be identified with the English, while the Armagnac tends to be identified with the French crown. But that was not necessarily how things were destined to end up at the time. In fact, Anglo-Armagnac negotiations predated Anglo-Burgundian ones, and an Anglo-Gascon contingent ended up joining the League of Gia's 1410 army. So when the Duke of Burgundy heard that his opponents were bargaining with Henry IV and offering up Burgundian territory to entice the English king, he knew that he needed to make an offer of his own. Luckily for John, his close ally, Charles of Navarre, was the brother of the English Queen Joan, and so between that connection and the already inexistent Anglo-Flemish commercial ties, he was able to easily open up a diplomatic channel. 
John's negotiations centered around a marriage alliance rather than a territorial bribe, where his daughter Agnes would be wed to the Prince of Wales, Hell. Hell, the future Henry V, was instrumental in these negotiations and seemed to be more eager than his father for a Burgundian alliance. But just as a deal was about to be made, Henry IV decided to back out. However, the Prince of Wales arranged for the Earls of Arundel and Warwick to sail to Calais with about a thousand men to continue the negotiations in person. If you can't tell or don't already know from either history or Shakespeare, Henry IV and his oldest son had a bit of a rocky relationship and were currently in a bit of a power struggle for control of the court. But for now, we just need to focus on the fact that the Earls landed in Calais in late September, ready to put their services to use on behalf of Burgundy, if the price was right. John arrived in Arras in early October to meet with Warwick and Arundel, and by then, the English force had more than doubled and of course featured a large contingent of longbowmen. While the Earls were keen to secure a promise of aid in recapturing parts of Guienne from the French, John was not willing to betray the king in that respect, nor was he willing to risk his popularity with the people, so he only offered money to the English. Although this deal was not what the English had been hoping for, John was willing to pay handsomely, and so the earls joined his force. The Armagnacs quickly spread the word that John was employing English troops, and in their propaganda accused the Duke of Burgundy of betraying the kingdom and promising the moon to the English. However, John replied that he needed soldiers for this war, and that the Armagnacs, rather than the Burgundians, were the first ones to seek English aid. In this case, and for the most part when it came to the propaganda war, John the Fearless repeatedly had the upper hand. He was always far more popular with the people of Paris as we've seen, but it seems that the general attitude of the time was more sympathetic to the Burgundian cause than the Armagnac. Richard Vaughn notes that essentially every contemporary chronicler was on John's side. As John the Fearless was in Arras meeting with the English, the Armagnacs were marching on Paris. Although Armagnac soldiers had dominated the Ile-de-France over the past few months, many of the garrisons in the region were still filled by Burgundian soldiers, and just as importantly, the city of Paris itself was still fiercely Burgundian. So as the Armagnacs approached the capital, they found a city willing to defend itself. The Count of Saint-Paul had been named captain of the city and commanded a few thousand professional soldiers and a large citizen militia. Saint-Paul had been reinforced by Philip of Nevers and the army from the two Burgundies, who had decided to head to Paris when he was unable to link up with his brother in Picardy. The Burgundian-dominated royal council then officially declared the Dukes of Orléans and Bourbon, the Counts of Alessand and Armagnac, and the Constable of France, Charles d'Albret, all rebels, and announced that their lands and possessions were forfeit. The princes were even declared excommunicated based on a papal bull from the 1360s directed against rebels and the free companies. Soon after, the Duke of Berry was also declared a rebel for his Armagnac sympathies, and he was removed as royal lieutenant in Languedoc, a lucrative office that he had held since the beginning of Charles VI's reign. John of Berry had to flee Paris, and was thus definitively forced into the Armagnac camp. In Paris, the already intense persecution of known and suspected Armagnacs ramped up as their army got closer to the city. But undeterred, the Armagnacs began operations in the towns surrounding Paris. They were able to take Saint-Denis and Saint-Cloud, which controlled an important bridge over the Seine. But just as they were starting to make progress on the city, John the Fearless arrived in the Ile-de-France. The Duke of Burgundy had brought no Flemish urban militias with him this time. 
but instead now had an army made up of primarily French men-at-arms and English longbowmen. Both sides had their forces arrayed throughout the curves of the Seine northwest of the city of Paris. As the Armagnacs controlled the bridge of Saint-Cloud, John was forced to take the long way around the Seine in order to enter the city. This left him open to a potential Armagnac attack, but his enemies were themselves worried about being attacked in the rear by the Count of Saint-Paul if they were to march against John, and so remained dug in in their positions. The Duke of Burgundy entered a more paranoid and tense city than he had left. He was still extremely popular among the people of Paris, but he had brought with him the hated English. As the two sides began to dig in for the winter, both began sending foraging parties out across the countryside. Neither faction wanted a repeat of the previous standoffs, which had ended due to poor provisioning and a lack of funds. The Ile-de-France was soon picked bare as the Burgundians foraged on one side of the Seine, while the Armagnacs combed through the other. However, John the Fearless did not want to simply dig in and wait inside the city for the Armagnacs to give up. He knew that he had to take action, and that waiting would only put more stress on his finances. He was hiring the English at a steep cost after all, and their presence in the city was also loathed by the Parisians. The Duke of Burgundy decided that he would lead an attack on the bridge of Saint-Cloud. John was joined in this by his brother Philip, the Count of Saint-Paul, and the English. The Armagnac garrison at the bridge was fairly large, and so John knew that he had to march in force. The attack began right at dawn, and after a short but bloody battle, the Burgundians broke through and seized the bridge. When the Duke of Orléans and the other Armagnacs heard of the defeat, they decided to retreat from Paris. The Burgundians were steadily gaining the upper hand in the Ile-de-France, and if the Armagnacs remained for too long, they risked losing the other fortifications around the Seine and being surrounded by the Burgundians. So soon, they were retreating from Saint-Denis back to the provinces. Orléans and his allies were able to leave Saint-Denis without issue, but as they left, a group of Parisians descended on the abbey and began looting whatever baggage the Armagnacs had left behind. Fines were also issued to the residents of Saint-Denis, and the abbot was arrested for not putting up enough resistance to the Armagnacs. After the attack on Saint-Cloud and the retreat of the Armagnacs, John was at the height of his power. A grand council was held in Paris to decide what to do next and to help John pay for his war. Unfortunately for John, the famous anti-taxer, the royal treasury was just about empty, so a new tie was proclaimed, the first since 1406. But this tax could only be collected in Burgundian-dominated territory, and even much of that had been plundered by troops looking for supplies, so in the end it raised very little. Other methods of funding were also explored, such as a forced loan on royal civil servants. John decided to release most of his soldiers, including a large portion of the English, and soon the earls were on their way back to Calais. Now that John had unrivaled control of Paris, his next goal was command of the provinces. Soon, what remained of the Burgundian army was being sent out to capture unrepentant Armagnac territories and castles in the north and west parts of the kingdom. These expeditions included the capture of Louis de Chalons' Castle of Tonnerre, which completed the Burgundian seizure of the county, the county of Boulogne, and the castles of Dordogne and Etampes, which were owned by the Duke of Berry, the county of Clermont, which was owned by the Duke of Bourbon, Valois and Coucy, owned by Charles of Orléans, and the county of Vertu, which was owned by Philip of Orléans, as well as any other remaining Armagnac strongholds in Champagne and Picardy. By the end of 1411, the Armagnac military presence north of the Seine had been almost entirely eliminated. 
This military campaign was matched by an administrative purge. There had been almost no Armagnac-aligned officials working in Paris for a while. By the way, Charles d'Albret had been recently removed as constable, and the office had been given to the Count of Saint-Paul. But now, the dismissals were extended to royal bailiffs and seneschals working in the provinces. As the purge continued, it was extended to even low-ranking royal officials and anyone with suspected Armagnac sympathies. However, this purge had little effect south of the Loire River, where many of the core territories of the Armagnacs were. One notable exception of this was the far southern territory of Languedoc. While the Duke of Berry had held the captaincy of the region for many years, he had rarely visited and treated the office more as a source of income than a responsibility. Therefore, when Burgundian-aligned royal officials came to Languedoc to assume control of the region, they were met with little to no resistance. Languedoc can be contrasted with Alençon and bourbon Beaujau. Alençon was right south of Normandy and west of the Ile-de-France, while Bourbon and Beaujau were directly southeast of the Duchy of Burgundy. The location of these lands made it easy for Burgundian or royal forces to try and take them, but they also had long-lasting and mutually beneficial relationships with their Armagnac-aligned lords. The Count of Alençon and the Duke of Bourbon both spent lots of time in their territories and often held court there. They were local fixtures, and so when the Burgundians came knocking, they were met with much resistance and would eventually be turned away. The Duke of Bourbon even responded to the campaign into his territories with a counterattack into the Burgundian county of Charolais. A third case can be seen in the region of Poitou, which was also ruled by the Duke of Berry. John of Berry had spent much time in the regional capital of Poitiers and did have some supporters there. But when royal officials came to seize the county, the local officials found that their loyalty to the crown outweighed their loyalty to the Duke of Berry. As Jonathan Sumption wrote, quote, The successful campaign in Poitou was a striking reminder of the significance of the king's authority. And speaking of the king's authority, Charles had recovered his wits in January of 1412. Although, at this point, I don't think that sanity and madness is a good dichotomy to describe the king's mental state. Rather, he now alternated between suggestion and incoherence. So with Charles once more suggestible, he was convinced to ratify all the confiscations and campaigns which had occurred over the past few months. Furthermore, additional campaigns for the next spring were approved, and another tie was declared. This tax was not only much larger than the one from 1411, but now that the Burgundians controlled much of the kingdom, it was mostly collected. So with seemingly no hope of victory against the Burgundians, and with the king also participating in their persecution, the Armagnacs now turned once more to the English for aid. However, they weren't the only ones, as Anglo-Burgundian negotiations continued throughout the winter of 1411-1412. In general, John wanted a marriage between Prince Hal and one of his daughters, to secure the wool trade between England and Flanders, and to maintain peace between Burgundian France and England. He still wanted military aid, but was not as desperate for it as he was the previous year. Therefore, the Duke of Burgundy was only willing to give up so much to the English. Negotiations continued for a while, but were interrupted by English politics. Earlier, I had mentioned that Henry IV and Prince Hal were in the midst of a power struggle in London. When negotiations began, Hal was ascendant, and it looked like an Anglo-Burgundian treaty would be a done deal. However, in November of 1411, 
Henry IV dismissed the counselors loyal to his son and reasserted his control over the English government. This happened just in time for him to begin meeting with the Armagnac ambassadors. While John's proposed deal was fairly modest, the Armagnacs were willing to give the English an arm and a leg. They proposed a military alliance with Henry IV, which would include the returning of English Guienne to its 1360 borders, all for the cost of 4,000 English soldiers. The Duke of Berry and the Orleanist Count of Angoulême even offered Henry homage for their territories of Poitou and Angoulême, which would also revert to the English upon their deaths. So with an offer too good to refuse, and one which would strengthen Henry's position against Prince Hal, the King of England agreed to aid the Armagnacs. When Hal heard of the deal, he penned a letter to the Duke of Burgundy, warning him of the alliance, and apologizing for their negotiations falling through. John the Fearless had already gotten wind of the Anglo-Armagnac negotiations, and was already making plans to destroy the Armagnacs before the English could tip the scales back in their favor. The Duke of Burgundy had intercepted some Anglo-Armagnac communications and had used the admittedly treasonable dealings to reinforce his position that the Armagnacs were treasonous and pushed the king to action. As an interesting consequence of this deal and the Anglo-Flemish Treaty of Neutrality, Henry IV sent a letter to the four members of Flanders requesting that they not send any soldiers to aid John the Fearless in his upcoming campaign against the Armagnacs. The Flemings responded that they had no intention of breaching their neutrality, but that they also had a responsibility to aid the Duke of Burgundy and the King as their sovereign lords. I don't know how many, if any, Flemish militias ended up joining the Duke for the upcoming campaign, but I still find this diplomatic episode interesting. The main target of the upcoming campaign was to be the Duke of Berry. I'm not exactly sure why John of Berry was selected to bear the brunt of John the Fearless's wrath, but I do have a few theories. First, the Duke of Berry was the senior noble in the realm. With Louis of Orléans gone, as well as Philip the Bold and Louis I of Anjou, John of Berry was the only adult son of a king, other than the king of course, and so naturally commanded a certain degree of respect and influence. Therefore, while he wasn't as firm of an Armagnac as the Duke of Orléans or the Counts of Armagnac and Alençon, he represented more of a threat to the Duke of Burgundy's hold on the government than the other nobles did. Second was that the Anglo-Armagnac deal was negotiated while the Armagnac leaders were meeting with the Duke of Berry in his capital of Bourges, and that the letters which were intercepted bore his signature, making him a useful focus of anger. Third was that he had been detached from the Armagnac cause without too much trouble in the past, and it was possible that a show of force would be all that was needed to secure his surrender. And fourth, it's possible that John the Fearless, a naturally paranoid man, had convinced himself that the Duke of Berry was actually the secret mastermind behind the Armagnacs. The theory was a part of the Burgundian propaganda currently running through the streets of Paris, and so it's quite possible that the Duke himself believed it. And so in late April of 1412, with a military expedition led by the King and Dauphin about to set off for Bourges to confront the Duke of Berry, word had gotten out that Louis of Bavaria, brother of the Queen, had spoken positively of the Dukes of Orléans and Berry in a private conversation with the Dauphin. Almost immediately, the people of Paris accused him of being a secret Armagnac. Louis responded diplomatically by saying that he was not a partisan of anyone except the king. However, this response was not enough to assuage the anger of the Parisians, 
and so he decided that it would be best for his health if he were to spend some time away from the city and the large Burgundian-aligned army being assembled. Louis of Bavaria thus fled to Hainaut, which was governed by his cousin, William of Bavaria, after all. And thus, the mediator queen was denied her best means of influencing her son. And it's hard to say whether this incident was organic or arranged by John the Fearless to assure his influence over the Dauphin in the upcoming campaign. After a few months of preparations, the royal army had mustered and began the march into Berry. A few fortresses on the way were taken without too much trouble, and the army was before the walls of Bourges in the second week of June. However, Bourges was a strong city which boasted impressive fortifications, and its placement amongst the marshlands where the Yevra and Oran rivers met made it almost impossible to fully besiege and cut off. The Duke of Burgundy was thus determined to take the city by force, and soon set up a large collection of artillery on some nearby high ground. The Bombard Griette, one of the Duke of Burgundy's largest guns, destroyed one of the towers of Bourges on the first day of the siege, and the city was soon under serious threat as buildings and houses were smashed and holes were punched through the walls of the city. But Bourges fired back with their own artillery, and this siege thus featured an early example of an artillery duel. Despite all the destruction, Bourges held out and did not seem to be at risk of falling soon, and the besiegers were having troubles of their own. At the beginning of the siege, the defenders had poisoned the wells of the surrounding area, and so when a heat wave and drought hit the region a few weeks into it, water was extremely hard to come by for the besiegers. As were supplies more generally, Armagnac garrisons still controlled much of the region between Bourges and Paris, and so convoys of food, supplies, and cash were attacked and often seized on their way to the royal army. Even supplies from Nevers and Burgundy were harassed. To make matters worse, dysentery soon spread through the besieging camp, killing, among others, Gilles of Brittany, a brother of Duke John V and a close friend of the Dauphin. Dissatisfaction was spreading through the royal army, and it was a royal army rather than a Burgundian one. And so, while John the Fearless was pulling the strings, and the officer corps of the army was definitely very Burgundian, John still technically was meant to defer to the Dauphin, who was now nominally in charge, as the king was once more absent. Things inside Bourges weren't great either, and the Duke of Berry hated the idea of being under siege from a royal army. And so ever since the siege began, a steady wave of envoys asking for a settlement had been sent from Bourges to the military camp. John the Fearless demanded the unconditional surrender of Bourges, and so for a while the envoys walked away empty-handed. But there were many moderates in the army who wanted to end the siege and resented John the Fearless's heavy-handed dealings. Desertions rose from a trickle to a steady flow, and before long, even the Dauphin had begun to think that the siege would accomplish nothing. As opinion was turning against the siege, word had reached Bourges that an English army had landed in Normandy and was heading for the city. The addition of the English forces would be decisive. While both armies were in the process of being reinforced, the 4,000 English soldiers would still allow the Armagnacs to significantly outnumber the Burgundians. Therefore, John realized that a negotiated peace now was better than risking a battle with the Anglo-Armagnac force. The Dauphin presided over negotiations between John of Berry and John of Burgundy. The treaty was fairly mild to the Armagnacs, and the Duke of Burgundy suspected that the moderates in the royal camp had begun to influence the Dauphin. Essentially, in exchange for submitting to the king, 
accepting royal authority, and repudiating the English alliance, all seized Armagnac lands, titles, and property would be restored, and the Duke of Burgundy would renounce his anti-Armagnac alliances, although he claimed that he had none. Additionally, calling someone an Armagnac or a Burgundian would be banned. Essentially, the Peace of Chartres was being reaffirmed. The preliminary deal was sealed when Berry and Burgundy met in person. They were in armor and separated by a barrier, a literal manifestation of the distrust that had grown between uncle and nephew. As they parted, the Duke of Berry turned to John the Fearless and with tears in his eyes said, Fair nephew and godson, when your father, my dear brother, was living, there was no need of any barriers between us. The Duke of Burgundy only replied curtly, It is not my fault. Now John the Fearless may have believed this, but quite frankly I don't. Ignoring the question of whether or not the Duke of Burgundy was justified in or forced to assassinate Louis of Orléans, his behavior after the deed is what, in my opinion, did the most to guarantee civil war. It is likely that if the Duke of Burgundy had made some formal apology, spent a few years away from court, and recognized that he could no longer dictate terms in Paris, that the whole ordeal would have just blown over. However, John was never willing to consider stepping away from power, and both the justification and the embarrassing peace at Chat galvanized the opposition to him and gave rise to the Armagnac faction. Moreover, the Duke of Berry in particular was never a strident Armagnac, and really only wanted a share of power in Paris. Richard Famiglietti wrote that the Duke of Burgundy and the people of Paris had, quote, forced him into actually becoming an Armagnac, whether he wished to or not. As the peace agreed to at Bourges, like all the other peace deals of the past few years, did nothing to solve the underlying tensions between the Armagnacs and Burgundians, a return to the conflict was inevitable. Furthermore, only some of the Armagnacs had agreed to this peace. In the end, Charles of Orléans and his brothers agreed to abide by it, knowing that after once more being deserted by the Duke of Berry, and with the royal army still in the field, they could not keep up the fight at the moment. The young Orléans brothers submitted to the king dressed in black mourning clothes, and after this submission, Burgundy and Orléans rode together on the same horse through the streets of Paris in a symbolic act of reconciliation. But this reconciliation, as purely symbolic as it was, was still not accepted by everyone. The Counts of Armagnac and Alençon and the Lord of Albret remained opposed to the Duke of Burgundy, and there was still an English army in France that had to be dealt with. While John the Fearless was undoubtedly still secure in his rule of France, opposition to that rule was ever-present. Thank you so much to my patrons. Once again, I have new patrons to thank. Mehmet, Comte Santerre, who, although he isn't a new patron, I've been unable to get into contact with until now. And Chris, Comte de Simour. And also, to Uldis, Duc de Chimay, Christine, Comte de Chenonceau, Elliot, Kraft von Kravenstein, Anthony, Comte de Chateauneuf-Nuxois, James, Kraft von Temsa, Preston, Comte de Saint-Fargo, Nicholas, Comte de Comari, Marc, Comte de Merceau, Diana, Kraft von Biersel, and to my Knights of the Duchy. If you want to join them, you can at patreon.com slash Burgundy. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, you can do so by leaving a review on your podcast app of choice and telling your friends about the show. Both really help to grow the show and will earn you my everlasting appreciation. 
If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow me at Valois Burgundy on Twitter or Blue Sky, or find Grand Dukes of the West on Facebook. You can also email me at granddukesofthewest.com and check out the podcast website for maps, images, sources, and more at granddukesofthewest.com. Once again, thank you for listening.